So we're on lesson number four, the title of which is Solomon's Wisdom. So Lord, we pray that your spirit would illuminate us, it would do its illuminating work as we look at uh, chapters three and four of First Kings and chapter one of Second Chronicles. Um, and this is about wisdom. And you have a wis wisdom that is available for us also, so we pray that you would help us to seek that wisdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so the first section is section A, Solomon asks for wisdom. So 1 Kings chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. Then Solomon formed a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her to the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. The people were still sacrificing on the high places because there was no house built for the name of the Lord until those days. Now Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of his father David, except he sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. The king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. In Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream at night, and God said, Ask what you wish me to give you. Then Solomon said, You have shown great loving kindness to your servant David my father, according as he walked before you in truth and righteousness and uprightness of heart toward you, and you have reserved for him this great loving kindness, that you have given him a son to sit on his throne, as it is this day. Now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David. Yet I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. Your servant is in the midst of your people, which you have chosen, a great people, who are too many to be numbered or counted. So give your servant an understanding heart to judge your people, to discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people of yours? So Solomon immediately marries a pagan woman for a political alliance. So what do you think that was against the Mosaic Law? I looked through and um, they were not to marry any of the Canaanites. They were to kill the Canaanites. But they did allow, like, to, you could uh, marry a conquered woman as a slave. So, um, you know, that are outside the land, outside the Canaan. So, you know, it's, it's not absolutely clear that it's against the Mosaic Law. But Genesis 2.24 was the standard, right? Man shall leave his father and mother and be bound to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Jesus brought us back to that in the first century. The Mosaic Law would regulate things that we do not consider okay to do in marriage, um, but it never commanded to do any of those things. Polygamy, for example, things like that. Um, but there is an important reason not to marry a pagan. And this is Deuteronomy 7, verses 3 and 4. Now, this is about the people of the land. So Deuteronomy 7, 3 and 4. 
Speaking of the Canaanites, Furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them, you shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will quickly destroy you. And that, of course, is true for any pagan. And this prohibition is still in effect today in the church age, right? And that is 2 Corinthians 6, verses 14 and 15, which people very frequently ignore in our day, and it leads to pain. So 2 Corinthians 6, 14 and 15, do not be bound together with unbelievers, for what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Rhetorical question. There's nothing in common. You know, this good-looking person that you're interested in, usually physically, and they're an unbeliever, it's a trap. So then verse 2, it says he went to the high places. So were the high places a problem? Yes. Yes, for those of you online, we have a very small class today, very intimate. Yeah, they were a problem, and in uh, Numbers 33:52, the Lord told the uh, Israelites what they were to do with the high places when they went into the land. And as soon as I find it, Numbers 33:52, then you shall drive out all the inhabitants of the land from before you and destroy all their figured stones, and destroy all their molten images, and demolish all their high places. So the Israelites were to destroy all the worship sites of the Canaanites. So where were they to worship? That's in Deuteronomy 12, verses 3 through 5, and it tells them that you will Worship in the place where the Lord your God will choose. So, in the beginning, that was in Shiloh. After they first conquered the land, the tabernacle and the ark were in Shiloh. And early in First Samuel, that's where we learned about Eli and his sons who had become corrupt. And uh, the Israelites took the ark as a good luck charm to help defeat the Philistines. And, well, the Lord doesn't work that way, and so the Philistines defeated them. They took the ark, the Philistines, and uh, at this point, or just before this, the ark and the tabernacle had been separated from each other for almost 100 years. A long time. And this was during the time of Samuel. The ark and the tabernacle was separated, and Samuel did worship on high places. And the Lord overlooked it, it seemed like. Uh, the tabernacle was at Nob for 76 years. That's where Saul executed all the priests, was at Nob. And then 58 years at Gibeon. And it was currently at Gibeon when Solomon began to reign. And the ark was then in a tent, which David had set up in Jerusalem. So 
under the dispensation of law, where you worshipped was important. The Lord told you where to worship. Is it important today? Is it? Yeah. Yeah, you know, Jesus changed. There's dispensational shift in John 4, 21 and 24. This is Jesus speaking to the Samaritan woman at Sychar. And, you know, the cement. The Samaritans worshipped on Mount Gerizim, which was not where the Lord said, because they mixed Judaism with paganism. And so this is what Jesus said to the Samaritan woman. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain, that's Mount Gerizim, nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So Jesus is changing the paradigm, if you will, to having to go to the temple to worship God. Now, in our time, we are commanded to meet, to be in fellowship. It does not say where. So, you know, in our case, we meet on Portland 64th in this little cobbled-together house <laughs> that we have here. Um, but it's not required to meet here. You know, we could meet in someone's house. We could meet in another place. We could meet anywhere else. Now, in the Millennial Kingdom, where you worship, again, will be important. There will be at least some from every nation that will be required to go to Jerusalem and worship, or their nation will not get rain that year. So, so that's interesting, and it's just an example that dispensationalism is not a man-made thing. It's from observing the Bible, and observing how the Lord changes things as time goes along. Verse 3, then. Solomon loved the Lord, because it says specifically in God's inerrant word that Solomon loved the Lord. And he was walking in the statutes of his father David, except for this fact that he sacrificed and burned incense on the high places, which is not according to the Mosaic law. So this is an example where a young person is more spiritually mature than the same person at an older age, because we know Solomon's history, that he fell away, and because of this habit he had of marrying pagan women um, was the reason he did that. So it is possible for a saved person to fall away, and we see it way too often. Solomon is a, you know, glaring example of that. So, and, you know, it says Solomon loved the Lord, and then it defines what that means. He walked in the statutes of his father David, or he walked in the Mosaic Law. That is what loving the Lord is. Loving the Lord is obeying his commands uh, to you. And he started off very well, Solomon did, and then he fell away. So he went to this uh, to the tabernacle that did not have the ark in it in Gibeon and offered a thousand burnt offerings, so overwhelming number of offerings. And in response, the Lord appeared to him in a dream and gave him a blank check. 
said, what do you want? So what would you ask for? You know, it's hard to even imagine what you'd ask for if God said he didn't make any stipulation about what. He just said, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so... <laughs> right. So, yeah, I mean, he'd just been made king over a very... David had been very successful, conquered a lot of kingdoms, so he's overseeing a lot of vassal kingdoms also. And, it, you know, now it's a prosperous well-developed country, and he's a young person, so he asked for wisdom to rule. Okay, so now we're on section B. God gives Solomon wisdom. This is 1 Kings 3, verses 10 through 15. Verse 10 is very interesting. His request was pleasing in the eyes of the Lord, in the sight of the Lord, that Solomon had asked for wisdom. So do you ever ask yourself, how can I please God? How can I please God today? You know what? That's what we were made for. Right there. That's what. We, how can I please God today? That is why we exist, really. Um, this is our purpose. Westminster Catechism, right? Was the chief end of man. To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That is why we're here. So um, if you're ever wondering why you're here, just ask, how can I please God today? And ask yourself that every day, and you will have a very blessed life. So verse 11, God said to him, because you have asked this thing and have not asked for other things, long life, riches, or the lives of your enemies, that's what pleased him. So wisdom is available to us also. Solomon asked for wisdom, and the God gave it to him in abundance. Wisdom is available to us in abundance also. And that's James 1.5. It says, but if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Now this verse is in the context of trials. So when you're in trials, many times you need wisdom, right, to navigate the trials. To navigate the trials, yes. But, uh, you know, I think this can be expanded to almost anything. If you lack wisdom, ask of God. And it, the, the word of God, which is inerrant and true, says, who gives to all generously and without reproach. He will not say, you stupid idiot. He won't say that. He gives without re reproach. He said, you ask? Yes, I'll give it to you. So um, that is available to us. We have to have the faith to believe it. Yeah, we have to have the faith to believe it. And an old missionary in El Paso, I asked him about this once. I said, how does that work? And he says, well, he had an answer for me. He says, you think about it. You ask God for wisdom. You think about it carefully, and you decide, knowing 
that God has given you the wisdom, and then you trust what happens. And you know what? That works. That works. And um, in hindsight, you, you can see, yes, he did give me wisdom. That, it's, it's an extremely practical verse. Yeah, so you're talking about an immediate crisis right. that happens right now, and you have to do something this minute, yeah. So um, wisdom now is uh, knowledge applied. To have to have knowledge, you first to have wisdom, you first need knowledge, and that's why we come here. That's why we read the Bible because the Bible gives us knowledge of what we need to know. Wisdom is that knowledge applied, and that's the whole book of James. Basically, the entire book of James is take the knowledge that you have, and this is how you apply that knowledge and become useful to God. That's how you become useful to God, is when you apply the knowledge and it expresses itself, and that is the path of blessing. So verse 12, I have done according to your words, I have given you a wise and discerning heart so that there has been no one like you, no one like you, before you, nor shall one like you arise after you. I mean, what? An amazing gift, right? There was no one like Solomon as far as wisdom until the monoginous, the one of a kind, came who had an advantage <laughs> because he was also fully God. And so um, there's no other just human who is not also God who is more wise than Solomon, which is amazing, you know. And it goes to show you also that just being wise does not protect you from going off the rails, because he did. Yeah, he did. He did. Well, also, and, you know, he, no, he can't play the ignorant card, but I, I guess he did marry Pharaoh's daughter before this, before he was given this wisdom. But you would have think that would have, he would have stopped doing stuff like that. And gosh, he did it to the maximum. Yeah. So verse 13 is God's grace. He didn't ask for these things. He says, I have also given you, given you what you have not asked, riches, honor, so that there will not be any among the kings like you all your days. So that is God's grace. And much of what we receive from God is, everything we receive from God is through grace. And that's just like him, right? He's gracious, very gracious. Okay, now we're on section C. Salmon demonstrates supernatural wisdom. 1 Kings 3, verses 16 through 28. It's about the discussion between the two harlots and the one, the one living baby. So, <clears throat> for the online people, there were two harlots living in the same house. They gave birth to two baby boys three days apart. Then one died by suffocation under his mother. Both said that the living child was hers. And then Solomon's solution was to execute the child by dividing it in two and to give each woman half. And that was designed to draw out the compassion of the real one. Now, you, you would think even the, the other one would have compassion, but she did not have compassion. Yeah. Yeah, you know, verse 27, Give the first woman the living child and by no means kill him. She is his mother. 
So, yeah. So then when the natural compassion of the true mother brought was was drawn forth by that threat, basically. So then verse 28, Israel heard about this. All Israel heard about it and respected the king for his wisdom. And then, uh, you know, I mentioned this before, but Solomon demonstrates his wisdom. That's not a guarantee of continued faithfulness, however. You can have wisdom for a while and then do stupid things that are unwise afterward. And uh, Solomon wrote these Proverbs, which tells us how to protect ourselves against that. For example, Proverbs 4.13 says, Take hold of instruction, do not let go. Guard her, for she is your life. That is why we never stop reading the Bible. We never stop. Right there. Take hold of instruction. Do not let go. Guard her, for she is your life. It's essential to keep you from having your sin nature redominate, take over again. And another one written by Solomon, Proverbs 19.27, Cease listening, my son, to discipline, and you will stray from the words of knowledge. Uh, so we continue. We continue to, you know, when I was a kid, I read through the Bible once, and I was so proud of myself in high school. And then I didn't read it again for 25 years. <laughs> and, and you know what happened in my life? Sin nature took over. Yeah. So um, then 1 Corinthians 10.13, anybody know that one? 1 Corinthians 10.13. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. So we need God's word. Jesus said that. And that keeps us from, because the sin nature is still inside, still fighting for dominance. And the way to control it is to walk in the spirit. And we need the uh, Bible to do that. Okay, so then the quarterly skips. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 28. And so what that is speaking of is Solomon's officials. It talks about Azariah, who is Zadok's son, as high priest. So remember, Zadok and Solomon were anointed together when he was uh, coronated. So his son took over relatively early on as high priest. Then Benaiah, remember in the last lesson, he executed Adonijah, Joab, and Shimei for Solomon to consolidate his power. He was in charge of the army. And then um, Adoniram, who we're going to learn about later, was placed over forced labor. So Solomon had a slave labor force, and they were actually instrumental in building the temple and his palace. And then also he had 12 deputies. Ben-Hur was one, you know, of the movie Ben-Hur, who it was their responsibility to provide supplies for the palace one month out of the year. And the supplies were a lot. 
like 300 bushels of um, grain, 600 bushels of barley or something like that, you know, every day. You know, 30 animals were slaughtered. So he had a lot of people eating <laughs> in his palace. And they were to, you know, supply that one, one month out of the year. Then Solomon ruled over all nations from the Mediterranean to the Euphrates. They were subject to him. And the liberals would say, or the replacement theologians would say, that that fulfilled the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 15, verses 18 through 21. It explains the land that God is going to give to Abraham. And they would say that was a fulfillment. But the Abrahamic covenant said that piece of real estate would be Israel. This does not fulfill that because Israel was that little slice, like it is now, and all these were still other kingdoms which were subject to Solomon and paid tribute to him, but they were not Israel. And so that promise has not yet been fulfilled, that land promise. Israel is to go from the Nile in the south to the Euphrates, so to include most of Iraq. That's how big Israel is going to be, and it will be in the Millennial Kingdom. So that has not been fulfilled, and the church has not replaced Israel. That is the corollary to that. So um, we're on D, so we might even make it. Yeah, we'll make it. So Solomon's wisdom gains renown, and that's First Kings Chapter 4, verses 29 through 34. So I'll read that one. Now, Sol now God gave Solomon wisdom and very great discernment and breadth of mind, like the sand that is on the seashore. Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the sons of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. For he was wiser than all men, than Ethan the Ezrahite, Heman, Chalcol, and Darda, the sons of Mahal, and his fame was known in all the surrounding nations. He also spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs were 1,005. He spoke of trees, from the cedar that is in Lebanon even to the hyssop that grows on the wall. He spoke also of animals and birds and creeping things and fish. Men came from all peoples to hear the wisdom of Solomon, from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. So Solomon's wisdom was greater than the wisdom of Mesopotamia. These were the sites of knowledge in the ancient Near East, Mesopotamia, Babylon, and also Egypt. Okay, Alexandria had a huge library, uh, remember, and uh, I believe there was also a, a very extensive library in Babylon. And And Solomon's wisdom was greater than these sages in Mesopotamia and Egypt. The East is, you know, Babylon, basically. If When they say the East, they're talking about the area of Shinar or Babylon. And also wiser than Israel's wise men. And Ethan the Ezraite wrote Psalm 89. Heman the Ezraite wrote Psalm 88, and his 
psalm is very interesting. His psalm is uh, very down. He's the one he gets to the end. You know, normally in the psalms they start kind of down and then they get they rejoice at the end. He never <laughs> rejoices. He starts at the beginning saying God is his savior, and then it's uh, very uh, negative after that. It's a very interesting psalm. But he was known as a wise man in Israel, and then these Kalkal and Darda, I'm not sure uh, where they are, but they're other wise Israelites. Solomon was wiser than they were. So and then verse 32 says he spoke 3,000 Proverbs, and 582 of those we have in the Proverbs, in the book of Proverbs, that are preserved for us. And of the 1,005 songs, we have preserved the Song of Solomon, the book Song of Solomon, and then Psalm 72. It's also written in kind of song form about the king, about the Messianic king. He had wide intellectual pursuits. He was interested in botany and zoology. And... Uh, so, and he was famous for his wisdom, and of course the most um, prominent example we have of that is the Queen of Sheba when she came, and she was blown away by Solomon and by the temple and by his palace and all these things. And people came because there wasn't the internet in those days, so they came to hear him, to listen to him. You know, just like the financial people go to Warren Buffett today. <laughs> Warren Buffett isn't going to be with us much longer. But he's a smart investor, and Solomon was smart about everything. And so wouldn't you like to have a reputation like that? That's assuming that you held your pride in check. You know, that's very dangerous to be the wisest man on earth ever. <laughs> You know, and God to tell you that, and then also to be, you know, so wealthy and uh, so famous and very dangerous. And we see what happened with Solomon. So then one more part that the quarterly does not cover was First Chronicles chapter 1. And that just reviews the Lord granting his request for wisdom. And the cause of his downfall was not being careful of the Lord's word. Not being careful of the Lord's word. Because First Chronicles chapter 1 talks about how he gained all these horses and all these chariots. Exactly, exactly. So that is Deuteronomy 17. And, you know, he was told as king to copy... The Mosaic Law, have a copy for himself and read it every day. And this was in the Mosaic Law. Deuteronomy 17. And this is verse 16. Moreover, he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor shall he cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. That's exactly what he did. He went to Egypt. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never again return that way. And then verse 17, he shall not multiply wives for himself, or else his heart will turn away. 
nor shall he greatly increase silver and gold for himself. So um, all of those things he fell into. <laughs>